Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now murphy shallow right center but it hangs up in the air oh he dropped it he dropped the ball and atlanta takes remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks i'm one of your hosts james uh and i promise we are not actually being taken by atlanta god no i'm also thrilled we're not being taken by atlanta diaz back with you but i was in that specific instance, actually happy to see Atlanta win. Helped us along the way to a great clinch for the Phils. But we do have a very special guest with us today. He is the first member of the 4070 Club. But it's not the 4070 you might think it is. Please introduce yourself. That's right. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier. The guy who traded Seiya Suzuki in Dynasty, but does have Ronald Acuna. It's trading a 40 skill player away and getting the 70 skill player back. That's what we are going for there, folks. Making out like a bandit there. But Xavier, I wonder, are there things that are making memories? So sports suck right now, especially being a Jets fan. I'm sure as much as James loves the misery of the Yankees, there is one bright spot, and that's the fact that Garrett Cole is going to win his first Cy Young. Probably deserved one beforehand, but he's going to win this one. He already had it wrapped up, and then last start of the season against Toronto, who's chasing a wildcard spot in Toronto, complete game two hit shutout. He leads the American League in every single category known to man and some known only to Dolphins. And he's <laughs> going to be unanimous Cy Young. Is the Dolphins signals like, does that have something to do with Pitchcom where they're picking up some sonar that we're not getting? Yeah, that's how they uh, deal with it in hostile territory when it's too loud to hear the Pitchcom. They actually go higher than the pitch of the crab with some dolphin noises. This segment has been brought to you by the U.S. Naval Submarine Service. Hey, the fact that navies around the world actually have trained dolphins to do, like, aquatic maneuvers against hostile countries is fucking phenomenal. I love the idea of, like, hey, you, you work with a police canine? I swim with motherfucking super stealth ninja dolphins. I do not want to sanction bringing dolphins into the imperial project they do not know that they are being used for that purpose and i think it's disingenuous to to force them into this servitude one thing i do posit though and this is like a super hot take it has nothing to do with sports i personally believe dolphins are more intelligent than humans i think they just don't have thumbs and that's really the only difference um so i like to think that yeah, they're like I. I think the dolphins are just kind of like, oh look, those fucking like kind of monkey looking dudes are down here. Uh, sure, whatever. You know, they give us food whenever we do uh, their thing. We'll, we'll amuse them for a little bit. So they don't know that they're war criminals. They think they're just like having some fun with their little monkey friends. So personally, I'd like yeah, I don't hold the dolphins accountable for anything. See, I, I was thinking the other way with that, as someone who is a big fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the dolphins just peace out and say screw it we're flying away before you guys get destroyed the dolphins know exactly what they're doing like hey we can be war criminals right now and no one's gonna blame us so let's just do it 
Just like the orcas who are attacking the boats, killing all the rich people. They're like, no one's going to get mad at us. We're orcas. We're dolphins. We can just do this and everyone will still love us. And before any Douglas Adams fans get mad at us, like Xavier said, the dolphins say, screw it. They famously say so long and thanks for all the fish. It's the name yeah. of one of the five books in the trilogy, which is uh, very appropriately titled. But anyway. Enough about the weird things make memories for me. Diaz, what's making memories for you? Well, so two things, and we alluded a little bit coming off of James's Open, but the Phillies are back in the postseason, baby. They will be hosting the first game of the wildcard series tomorrow night, if you're listening on Monday. An incredible story for an incredible guy to get the walk-off hit. Johan Rojas was not on anybody's radar at the start of the season, but... The beautiful thing about baseball is if you produce, you're going to get your chances. He gets called up from double A in July. I think his literally first inning, he made a jumping catch at the wall and then doubled off the runner at first. He has been just an absolute beast defensively in center field all year. But it's only fitting that then with an underappreciated bat, he's a much better hitter than I think he gets credit for. He's right around 300. He gets the walk-off hit and extra innings to send us through. And... He gave a nice interview afterwards where he does speak some level of English, but like it's kind of similar to like, you know, Shohei can speak English, but he doesn't want to be misrepresented. He's going to feel more comfortable with the translator. In this instance, Johan's translator did him a little dirty, though he might have been trying to protect him because his last answer, Taryn Hatcher, the, the Philadelphia Phillies reporter asked, how does it feel to get this big walk-off hit? And what he said translated, and this is loosely, but this is much more accurately than what the reporter translated it as. He said, it's a big win, but truthfully, we have a lot more to win. Right now, we're going to focus on the playoffs, and we're going to win those two. He's, he's making his claim. He says we're going all the way. And the translator with the Phillies just said it as, oh, you know, it's a big win, and I'm just really happy to be a part of this team. He said nothing like that whatsoever. Like, the second I heard the translation, I was like, that's bullshit. And, like, you're doing your job as a public relations guy for the Phillies, too, to make sure this bulletin board material doesn't get out. But I love the swagger from Johan Rojas. 23 years old, going to be the center fielder for the next decade. Absolute stud. And I'm sure it's just the first of many memories that he's going to make along the inevitable war that will happen in this podcast when we get the Phillies Orioles World Series. It's, it's destiny. It's going to happen, folks. James will refuse to acknowledge it and cannot live in that world. And I do respect that, but I'm saying it so they don't have to. It's going to be Phil Zos. It just has to. So I'm looking forward to all the memories that we made along the way to that. I will talk about the Baltimore Orioles at a later date. I am not ready <laughs> to talk about the Baltimore Orioles right now. This is Thursday. They haven't done it yet. So I'm not going to talk about it yet, but I, I promise that I will. Uh, at the risk of just turning this exclusively into a baseball podcast, I do have one thing, though, that I wanted to mention, and that is the retirement of Tito Francona. Other retirement we are getting here with Miguel Cabrera at the end of the season. We talked about retirements a little bit last week. I just want to take a moment to say I think it is underrated how much of a, a narrative element it is that Terry Francona is the manager that Theo Epstein's Cubs go up against in 2016 for Cleveland, who 
I did not realize he'd been in Cleveland longer than he spent in Boston by the end of it. Spent a full decade in Cleveland after his seven years of there. Involved in, I, I think you can argue probably two of the, at worst, five most important World Series of all time with 2004 and 2016. Hasn't really, like, based on the few Cleveland fans I know, been a well-regarded manager the last couple years, but had a whole lot of nostalgia ride off that whole time. And, uh, like, I don't even have anything smart to say about Terry Francona. Those Red Sox fucking killed us constantly. Like, it sucked. It is kind of funny that the Orioles basically ended his Red Sox career with the Antino game. That, that was the very last Red Sox game that Terry Francona ever managed. But yeah, man, just, just another one of those changes in the guards. One that wasn't, it, you know, he's had health problems for a couple of years now with blood clots. And uh, one actually last thing I would like to say that I do really love about this is uh, apparently, I don't know if it was last night or the night before, one of the final games in Cleveland, he made t-shirts and he handed out t-shirts to all of the teammates uh, about it being, you know, the final season. And I, I love that idea. I feel like I've done that too before. We're like, you're not entirely sure about a decision you're about to make. And so you have to do some kind of stupid investment to really commit to it. Even said afterwards, like I've made t-shirts now. Like I, there's no turning back. Terry Francona, man. No, but, Final but, memories made, we'll say. No, along those same lines is why I'm glad it was a $200 deposit for the Philadelphia Marathon because I would not be getting my ass up at 3 a.m. for training runs if I didn't already pay $200. There you go. Um, and, like, he might have gotten it for 200 if he got a good enough deal on, on Custom Ink or something. I'm sure they were able to hook something up for him, uh, make it a little special. But, no, Terry Francona, anytime I hear that name, I think that that was probably my first – incredibly wrong sports take that I ever had was when the Sox hired him for the 04 season after getting rid of Grady Little. And to me, I was just like, Terry Francona was that manager when the Phillies were winning fucking 60, 70 games a year. He sucks. Like, this is, this is terrible. There's no way this is going to work out. And lo and behold, he goes on in his first year and does the unthinkable. Though, so, as we know, that, that is also exclusively attributed to Orlando Cabrera as well. Orlando Cabrera, of course. Um, At least in and, this and, world, Orlando Cabrera single-handedly carries the Boston Red Sox across the finish line. Well, it was Orlando, and we also, obviously, we have the honor of the Hall of Guy inductee, but we can't forget Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore. They were there the whole way, too. I fucking love that movie, despite its Bostonness so much. It is a great twist of it that, like, they made the movie... First of all, it's taken from uh, a... British movie yeah. originally. Specifically, Arsenal during one of the greatest seasons in history where they had to come back and win the league title at Anfield against Liverpool on the last day of the season when the season had to be extended because of like some terrible tragedies. And so Liverpool were first, Arsenal were second. Arsenal had to win at Liverpool, who had not lost at home in years buy two or more, and score the second goal in stoppage time to win it 2 nothing. and Liverpool players fall on the ground in tears and can't even restart the game. They did think, okay, there's a good parallel here where it applies to the Red Sox, and oh, and then the Red Sox lose, and but they find love, and yada, yada, yada. And then they had to film, like, Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore just the, field the World Series. <laughs> 
I mean, that's just like, I, I would just love to have been a fly on the wall of that production room of like, all right, guys, movie set to come out in December and uh, socks are down 3-0. Our script is perfect. We're going to be great. Okay. And then they fucking come back. <laughs> One final fever pitch bit before we move on to our main category. Do you remember the player that hits the foul ball that gives Drew Barrymore the black eye? Oh, that feels like it would have been Johnny Damon. It is Orioles legend Miguel Tejada. Oh, even better. So I'm clearly I'm just waiting for the Baltimore movie now. Also, I think it's because we talked about it too much privately, but we should mention LOL Miami Heat get fucked. Dame to Milwaukee is hilarious. It's the best. Bring Drew Holiday home. Bring him to Philadelphia. It's, it's the best. It's the best. And it does set up a world now where James Harden goes to the Clippers, the things from the Clippers that we don't want go to the Blazers, we give the Blazers like one or two other things too. And we do bring Drew home. And just from a simple narrative structure perspective. It's meant to be. The process started with Drew Holiday being traded. And I'm not even saying that we need to win a championship with Drew here. But for the process to be brought to a natural conclusion, it must be concluded by Drew Holiday coming. And then see what happens. If, if, if we lose with Drew Holiday here, I can live with it. And it is, a, it is a story well told and completely told if Drew Holiday comes back. Well said. But we don't want to keep you all waiting any longer. You might be wondering what we're doing here on this, the two-year anniversary of this show. We've alluded before that there is an unaired pilot. Uh, when we were first putting this together, some advice that we saw online was when you record the first thing you do, Destroy the files forever. No one wants to hear the first episode. It's terrible. You will be figuring out what you're doing and it's just not worth it. So there exists in the ether of space and time, a conversation we had about three guys. And you know, a lot that happened during that day was the proverbial rock upon which we built our equally proverbial, though significantly more secular than usual church, the Hall of Guy. All this time later, it feels inappropriate that they have not been commended outside of uh, the plaques that two of them do hold. And so today we want to take you back in time to relive these three guys who have been hinted at before, but now can be fully fleshed out as the, the origin in this instance of an unaired pilot taking flight once again. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start us off and... The theme for our first episode, the unaired pilot, was that we wanted to do particular villains to our sports history. You know, for the Utah Jazz, obviously Michael Jordan's going to be a huge villain because he hit that huge game-winning shot. But maybe there was a guy that made a play earlier in the game that was just as important, and there's a Utah fan that just can't let go and can't fucking forget about that guy. Uh, so we wanted to talk about some of the maybe lesser known, but still very central figures of some of the largest heartbreaks that we as sports fans have suffered. To set the scene for my guy on January 19th, 2003, it's a beautiful day in South Philadelphia. It's a crisp 24 degrees out, but the skies are clear and the air is filled with hope that the Eagles will finally go back to the Super Bowl for the first time in 19 years. Uh, it's a momentous occasion. It is the last game ever at Veterans Stadium. The Eagles were buoyed by Hall of Guy inductee A.J. Feely, 
for six weeks to go five and one. But now Donovan McNabb is healthy, back under center, looking to take the lessons learned from last year's conference championship loss to the Rams and send Veterans Stadium out in style. And everything is going the Eagles' favor for this game because their opponent coming in is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Buccaneers had lost in Philly each of the last two playoffs. And also earlier that season, the Eagles had beaten the Buccaneers 20-10. to 10. In fact, across these three games, the Buccaneers had not scored one offensive touchdown. Not only that, the advantages that are apparent on the field. There is also the psychological difficulty of the Buccaneers playing on the bird in the playoffs and also in the cold. Going into this game, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had never won a road playoff game. Furthermore, in games where the kickoff temperature is 40 degrees or less, they were 1-22 entering. Game could not have gotten off to a better start. Brian Mitchell takes the opening kickoff back down to the Tampa 30. Two plays later, Deuce Staley is in the end zone, and we're not even a minute into this game. It's already 7-0. Eagles fans know how the rest of the game goes. We're down 20-10 late. Rondé Barber is the most famous villain to come from this game. He gets that interception, takes it down uh, to basically seal the game. But earlier in the game, it was 7-3. The Eagles had just pinned Tampa back down on their four. And they had a third and two still deep in Tampa territory looking to get a big stop. They go trips right. And this fucking tall, lanky white guy just runs a drag route, catches it and then turns it up the left sideline into a 71-yard gain, the longest play of the entire game. Two plays later, Mike Allstott punched in the touchdown. Bucks go up 10-7, and they never give the lead back. The man who made that catch, it was his only catch of the day, but it was the most significant play of the game, and as we'll come to find out, was under some incredibly difficult personal circumstances, which just makes it all the more impressive that my guy, Joe Jurevicius, was able to have the most impactful play of this game, a play that is still known in Tampa Bay Buccaneers history as simply the catch. So there are multiple teams that have the catch, right? Like there, there's a couple right. of those now. Well, like, yeah, the, like the Vikings have the Stefan Diggs. That's the catch. Mm. The Minneapolis well, no, that's the Minneapolis that's, that's got a name. Um, and like Immaculate Reception has a name. Uh, Tyree is the is helmet catch. catch. Yeah, wait, maybe there isn't another the catch. Well, so the 49ers, what's his face? Dwight Clark? Or is Dwight Clark the tight end? Dallas Clark was the Mm -hmm. uh, tight end. Dwight Clark, that's that's the reception. Yeah, the catch in baseball, too. Sure. Okay, that's probably what I'm thinking of. Right. So, I mean, you at least have two more famous instances of the catch. You got the Willie Mays catch, and you got the Dwight Clark catch. Also, Uh, dude, it's so mean they made Tampa play, like, Detroit and Minnesota and Green Bay all the time. (laughs) That was, yeah, that was the weird NFL Central. Um, but no, we're here to talk about Joe Juravicious. Joe Juravicious, first of all, incredible name. Second of all, born two days before Christmas, December 23rd, 1974. Uh, he's a natural athlete. He lettered in basketball at high school. He went to high school, grew up just outside of Cleveland. And in the vein of Pat McAnally, he was a duo receiver slash punter in high school. By the time he's going to college, though, when he enrolls at Penn State, he's just focused on wide receiver. He's got kind of the, the prototypical body that you're looking for in a receiver at this time. He's 6'5", so he's got a big body, pretty good speed uh, at a 4'6", And when you combine those, you're going to have a spot somewhere in the league. So the Giants take a chance on him in the second round in the 1998 draft. 
spends four years playing for the Giants. Uh, mostly he's a special teams guy, but across the four years, he does rack up 102 receptions for 1,442 yards and five touchdowns. He does appear in his first Super Bowl while with the Giants. Uh, in Super Bowl 35, he's got fellow Penn State alum Kerry Collins, a quarterback for the Giants, and doesn't get any connection with Kerry Collins. Does see his team get their asses whooped by one of the greatest defenses in the history of the game, those 2000 Baltimore Ravens. And in his first trip to a Super Bowl, he does lose because of Ray Lewis and Tony Saragusa. I think Shannon Sharp was a tight end for those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and certainly, I mean, the play of Trent Dilfer. We can't forget how important Trent Dilfer was to those teams. Trent Dilfer got to go to Disney World. He was the one that said it, right? He said it because Ray Lewis did not. Because, of course, as John Mulaney once put it, Ray Lewis had recently been within murdering distance of a couple people that got murdered. <laughs> To put it lightly, but yeah, so Trent Dilfer got to go to Disney World. Joe Jervishes did not get to go to Disney World, at least yet. But, he, you know, he goes through those four years. And then after the 2001 season, he becomes a free agent. 2002 offseason, it's a very big offseason for the Jervishes family. He signs a four-year contract with Tampa. Uh, so he's going down south. He's going to play uh, in, in some slightly warmer weather down there. And also his wife, Megan, becomes pregnant with what will be their first child. So it's a real big offseason for the Jurevicius's. His first season in Tampa puts a career-high four touchdowns. Uh, again, just kind of that third, fourth receiver, big on special teams guy. He's contributing. And the, the Bucs go 12-4. and four. They get the two seed. The Eagles get the one seed. Uh, so back then, the two seed, you still get the bye. So they go straight to the divisional round, and they take care of business against the 49ers. They win 31-6. Jervicious goes for three catches, 48 yards, and a touchdown uh, in the second quarter along the way. So good start on Sunday, victory Monday. He's not in the office. And on Tuesday, Megan gives birth prematurely to Michael William Jervicious. It's not an easy birth for mom. It's really not an easy birth for Michael. Uh, He's born with underdeveloped lungs. And at his birth, doctors gave a 2% chance of him living 48 hours. So obviously at this point, Joe's not going anywhere, but the hospital, he's going to be with his wife. He's going to be with his son, basically just hoping for the best at this point. They do clear that 48 hour threshold. Uh, Son is still in an ICU. At this point, they've cleared that threshold. They say he's stabilizing a little bit. So he goes uh, to the team facility just to meet with coach Gruden uh, to get his playbook. And within about five minutes of seeing him, Gruden said, get out of here, go back, be with your wife and son. So he at least had his playbook with him to review, to study something a little bit. And obviously he's kind of going back and forth debating, do I even play in this game? Do I just stay here? But finally, uh, when it comes to be Friday, Saturday, his wife, Megan said, look, you being here isn't going to change the outcome one way or the other. I want you to go play. Michael would want you to go play. Like you need to go play. One of the last flights out of Tampa that will get him the Philly in time is actually the fan charter that the, the Bucks put together. So they block off the last five rows of the plane. Joe Jurevich is just back there by himself. All the, the Buccaneers fans flying up as well. But obviously, leaving him alone, it's kind of a public story at this point, what he's going through a little bit. So nobody wants to bother him. And he's just sitting in the back of the flight. They, they touch down Saturday night after the walkthrough on Saturday even. Question. Does that mean a bunch of fans who originally were going to go 
could then not go because they had to block off five rows for just Joe Juravicious. That's a good point. So I didn't read anything more specific about like if they had sold out the entire plane or how that went, but it's certainly a possibility. Like I doubt the fans would care because like you said, it was public knowledge, but, but I wonder if it was just like, Hey, we need volunteers to not go because we need space for Joe Juravicious. Right. We'll, like pay you another way to get up there. I, well, that, I that's would imagine. 100% how they figured out who got moved. Right, yeah, it's it's probably no different than like a flight gets overbooked. It's like, all right, we're offering 500 in vouchers, we're offering 1,000 in vouchers, we're offering 2,000 in vouchers, and if we win this game, we'll give you Super Bowl tickets. Like, who knows what the, the order of proceeding was. But one way or another, Joe does get on that plane, and he's going to play in the NFC Championship game. Eagles got off to that great start that I mentioned, uh, and we're... Almost at the end of the first quarter, uh, when it's 7-3 Eagles, they just pinned Tampa back on their own four. They get a first down, and now they're facing third and two on their own 23. Again, they go tracks right. They got Keyshawn Johnson. They got Keenan McCardle. So two pretty good receivers. Obviously, that's where the focus is going to be in this trip set. And that freed it up for Jervicious to get matched up against a linebacker, Bobby Gardner. And uh, to hear Jervish talk about it, he said, as soon as he saw the formation... So if I just break across his face, I'm going to break free. Sure enough, he does. Brad Johnson hits him on a pass that maybe goes 10 yards max through the air. But he gets it to Jurevicius. Jurevicius turns up the sideline. He's got a blocker. And he says, but by the time he hit midfield, his lungs were just on fire. Because, again, you need to think, this is a prime conditioned athlete. But this is now basically a week of no exercise whatsoever. Just being in the hospital, be with his family. So his lungs are on fire by the time he's at midfield, uh, which is maybe why he ran out of steam a little bit. He does get pushed out at the six. But two plays later, I'll stop punches that in. Bucks go on to win 27-10. But that play, because I rewatched the game, the whole way it still feels like, you know, the Eagles, all right, we had the punt a couple times, blah, blah, but it's 7-3. Tampa's pushed way back in their own territory. You're thinking, all right, we're going to get a stop. They're going to punt. We're going to be on a short field again. We go score a touchdown, 14-3. Like, game was still fully in our control until Jurevich just does this. Yeah, because it's not even like, oh, man, they got another first out. Right, exactly. They get all the way down there. Just one of those, oh, very, very frustrating. Very frustrating as an Eagles fan because you're just, we have this incredible defense and here is their third receiver just sprinting away from everybody. As I said, it's his only catch in the game, but it's more than enough to swing momentum. Buccaneers go on to win that game. Bucks go on to the Super Bowl, and uh, Joe basically goes back to be with his family again. Like, stays for a celebration a little bit, but very quickly gets back to his family. Things are getting better for Michael at this point. He is stabilizing a little bit, so he is with the team throughout practices leading up to the Super Bowl, and... Famously, this is one of the biggest blowouts in modern Super Bowl history. The Buccaneers win 48-21. Joe Jurevicius is your leading receiver for that game, though. Catching four balls for 78 yards as Megan and Michael are able to watch together as Dad goes and wins his first Super Bowl. I love how momentous that conference championship game was. I mean, he's gone through all this turmoil. He only has the one catch. Game-defining catch. And I'm just picturing younger Diaz. Fuck that guy. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I was furious because I, I will say 
I'm racist against one group of people, and it's white athletes, because they're not supposed to be able to fucking run away from people like that. This is bullshit. They, they, I was so mad. I, I hate when white guys are like the most athletic guy and do athletic things on the court. It's just like, just fucking hit them. You shouldn't be able to the do one, that. The one trade-off for the white power structure is we're not allowed to have Jets. No, no white cornerbacks. <laughs> is Jason um, Seahorn the last one? I think like, he is still that, is. Is that still... Like, you got a few safeties, like Eric Weddle. Uh, well, Eric Weddle is done. Now. I was going to say Eric Weddle, but he is done now. True, true, true. He's officially retired. I think um, it's still Jason Seahorn as the last white cornerback. Um, Debrina's back down. We'll move on. But it is very sad, and it is part of his story, that after fighting hard for two months, Michael William Jurevicius does pass away uh, from his conditions that he was born with. So... A two-month life uh, in which Joe says during that whole playoff run how much inspiration he drew from Michael because, like, look, like, I, if you think this game is important and this game is tough and my, my son's literally fighting for his life. So he says he drew a lot of inspiration from that. It is at least nice that his firstborn son was alive and was with his wife and you know, was with his mom during one of the, the, the biggest moments of his professional career to win that Super Bowl. So, a very sad thing. Uh, we don't need to dwell on it anymore. He plays two more seasons in Tampa. Nothing really significant statistically going on there, um, except that in the first game of the next season, uh, on Monday Night Football, Tampa, this is before the defending champion just automatically got to play a home game, or maybe the Eagles were away the first week, however it went. It's the first game at Lincoln Financial Field, Monday Night Football. Tampa comes in. Sylvester Stallone's, uh, you know, in character is Rocky unveiling the stadium. He's wearing a Deuce Daly jersey and just fully roided out biceps, getting the crowd hype. It, it was a beautiful scene. It was beautiful until Joe Jarvicius decided to torment Philadelphia again. He had three catches for over 100 yards and two touchdowns in that game. I don't know what personal vendetta he had against the city of Philadelphia, but just chose to make some of the biggest plays of his life against us en route to a disappointing opening to Lincoln Financial as the Bucks went on to win that game. After the 2004 season, he's a free agent. Um, he's going to sign in Seattle, where he's going to have a career year. Goes 55 catches for 694 yards and 10 touchdowns. Uh, so if you had him in fantasy that year, real solid high upside wide receiver two play. Uh, he goes to his third Super Bowl. But he again succumbs to the AFC North when the Steelers win it all in the worst game ever played by a quarterback who won a Super Bowl. Somehow, Joe Jervicious is on the wrong end of the two contenders. So just really, really unfortunate luck for him to have to lose to Trent Dilfer and Ben Roethlisberger. But he figures, I have this weakness to the AFC North. If you can't beat him, join him. So you might as well go home and sign with the team that you grew up watching, the Cleveland Browns. Probably the best two-year stretch of his career while he's with Cleveland. Uh, he goes for 90 catches for 1,109 yards and six touchdowns. And in 2007, he leads the NFL in third-down receptions to convert. So clutch, uh, he's the dependable receiver for Cleveland. And you know, he's on a four-year contract. So as he's coming back for year three, he's open to build upon that, continue to be a reliable piece for the Browns. But he has to get knee surgery in the offseason, which goes horribly wrong. He gets a staph infection in his knee. 
as a result of uh, the damage and you know trying to recover from that, he misses the entire 2008 season, but the team wants to acknowledge how hard he's fought to try to get back. They nominate him for the Ed Block Courage Award, and he swears that he's going to come back better than ever for the fourth year on his contract, and he's going to play in 2009, and the Browns cut him in March because they're not happy with the progress that he's made. He now spins this around and says, okay, fuck you guys. I got staph infection because you don't disinfect your shit before you get people surgery. I'm going to sue you. And in discovery, we're going to find out that Jurevicius is actually the sixth member of the Browns organization to get a staph infection following surgery since 2003. They suck. They suck so much, man. And there's something just especially apropos about the Browns not being cleanly and you know people getting infected post-surgery ultimately this ends as these things often do when multi-million perhaps even billion dollar organizations get sued they admit no wrongdoing but they do settle out of court for an undisclosed amount unfortunately because of this like it's not just the browns that he's done with he's not ultimately able to come back into the nfl now Still living a, uh, a good life back in that Cleveland area. Uh, has a couple small businesses that he runs. And a bit of a happy ending on the family note. Joe and Megan would have two more children uh, who grew up healthy and without complications. First, uh, born in 2004, was their daughter, Caroline. And it's important to note, Joe, not the only athlete in his family. Megan was a four-year track star at Princeton. And Caroline is currently a true freshman for our new favorite university, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. She's on the volleyball team. She's an outside hitter. She was a top 20 recruit in the country prior to signing to go to Nebraska. So was, was she a part of the game? She wasn't a part of the game. She hasn't appeared in any games yet as okay. a true freshman, which, again, a program of this stature, it does make sense. True freshman, got to earn your stripes, work your way up, but... Caroline Jurevicius, currently a freshman down there. Uh, she's an outside hitter. And also daughter Ava is currently a junior in high school. She's moved to the Lincoln area to be part of the volleyball scene there. It's a much more robust AAU scene for volleyball. And she's currently a libero, but that's because she's still only 5'9". Uh, if she gets that growth spurt to, to get up there like 6'5 dad or like 6'2 Caroline, I'm sure she can easily transition to being an outside hitter. But yeah, family of athletes, and uh, we will watch Caroline Jurevich's career with the, the Cornhuskers volleyball team with great interest. She is certainly a potential guy in the making. Joe Jurevich is certainly already a guy. Uh, well, I, I do want to say there's one more note to his story. Please, just yes. A, it's a little bit of a postscript from the playing career, but the one other incident worth mentioning, on September 14th, 2018, the family is about ready to go to bed. He's going to go out to the family barn to turn off the lights uh, where he encounters an armed robber. The armed robber, in order to, to hide his fingerprints, puts on the gloves that Joe Jervish has won during the Super Bowl victory with the Buccaneers, holds him at gunpoint for a half hour and takes him through the house demanding electronics and cash. At one point, Jurevicius offers his Super Bowl ring, but it gets turned down because he says, hey, they're going to know who I robbed if I take the ring. I'm not going to be able to hawk this. Eventually, Jurevicius does break free for a bit, runs back home, uh, barricades him and his family inside. They call the police. 
Uh, he arms himself with a handgun until they get there. Uh, the guy gets away. But the same stupid motherfucker robs another house two days later, gets caught this time, and is brought in for arrest. At the sentencing, Joe Jurevicius basically laid out his claim asking for maximum sentencing. And he punctuated by saying, uh, Your Honor, I was raised that if you don't have anything nice to say, to not say anything at all. And I think I'm done speaking now. No leniency whatsoever. All right. I'm just thinking of Roberto from uh, fucking uh, Futurama. Robbing the same place three times. I like your style. No one will ever expect it. I do want to be clear. It was a separate break-in at a separate residence. Yeah, but you said it was like in the same area. like Right, no. It was in the same area. No, it was in the same area. But yeah, the the guy got sentenced to 43 years. And the the, the one angle that Joe was especially not sympathetic to was basically the the defense was trying to lay out, oh, uh, this this guy whose name I didn't even write down because he's not important in the story. But oh, the defendant had a tough life. You know, he's dealing with stress and hurt people hurt people. And Joe Jervicious basically said, Dude, you wore the gloves that I wore in the Super Bowl while my fucking dying son was fighting for his life. I had a horrific staph infection that cost me my professional career. And yet I have somehow managed not to break into somebody's home and rob them at gunpoint. And so, you, had, you had the nerve to do that and then turn down the Super Bowl ring. Which is really the most insulting part of all of it. It is, I, I just don't understand like, this fucking guy is smart enough to think that he wants to cover his fingerprints, but stupid enough to not bring his own gloves. So let me just put on the gloves that this guy has in his house. Remarkable. But enough about that stupid criminal. Joe Jurevicius, you know, defended his family in that instance. Thank God everybody turned out all right. And to, to rip out the hearts of Philadelphia uh, while he's dealing with his own heart-wrenching situation and to persevere through that to move forward from what is obviously such an incredible personal tragedy uh, to still be a productive player in the NFL for many years after that to seemingly be a good parent. We don't know exactly what kind of parent he is, but he raised two daughters that kept his kids from getting killed by an armed robber. That's not nothing. He did. He certainly did. And uh, the one thing that I really liked was it, it's, it's clear how important Michael still is to the Jurevicious family. Uh, when Caroline committed to Nebraska, she, she you know, made her Instagram post. And, you know, I want to thank my mom and dad. I want to thank God. And, you know, I want to thank my guardian angel, Michael, who's been watching over me for my entire life. Um, so the Jurevicious family has done as best as possible to honor the legacy of Michael. And uh, I'm glad that, you know, today we're able to honor Michael a little bit and also honor his father, who, although he broke the hearts of Philadelphians, is uh, undoubtedly a guy in the history of uh, the National Football League. Well, and he is undoubtedly one of the guys that, again, we ourselves have built a legacy on at some point, however small that legacy may be. And, I mean, if I may continue with the next one of those guys, I want to introduce you all first to a slash line. This is a slash line of 280 average, 380 on base, 490 slugging. Sounds pretty good overall. In fact, from 2006 to 2014, only 15 players with a minimum of 500 plate appearances managed that slash line. And here is that list, courtesy of Sports Reference, in order of descending B-War. Albert Pujols, Miguel Cabrera, Alex Rodriguez, Matt Holliday, 
father of Orioles legend Jackson Holiday, David Ortiz, Joey Votto, Andrew McCutcheon, Chipper Jones, Mike Trout, Lance Berkman, Prince Fielder, Manny Ramirez, Paul Goldschmidt, Yasiel Puig, and by the skin of his teeth with just one season, Jose Abreu. Those guys have that. Who's that? Yeah. If those parameters seemed very specific, there is a reason. Because during that period of time, there is a secret 16th player who, with 500 plate appearances, has that clearly very good slash line. Now, it is understandable that people might not have been able to see this player hiding. He was, after all, playing in only two places. At the Trop, which no one has ever attended, and at Camden Yards during the mid to late 2000s, which is also not somewhere that a lot of people were attending. This player is specifically Ben Zobrist playing against the Baltimore Orioles. He was a pest, he was a menace, and he seared himself indelibly into my mind by this performance. And so he is the guy that I initially brought forward when we started trying to get this thing kicked off. Now, Ben Zobrist was born May 26, 1981 to Tom and Cindy Zobrist in Eureka, Illinois. It's about two hours southeast of Chicago. It's also only about three hours away from St. Louis. So it's contested territory. It's sort of like DMZ between those two. Uh, it was once the pumpkin capital of the world. It is also where Ronald Reagan's alma mater is located, but we're not going to hold that against them. Growing up, Ben loves baseball. He and his friends like build a wiffle ball field early on and he plays at Eureka High, but after graduation, he figures that is it. It's been a fun time. I'm going to go to a Bible college now and get bible He is the son of preachers. He is going to, for all of his life, be very, very bible But his high school coach says, look, hold on, man. There's a showcase. It's going to cost you 50 bucks to get in. I, I think it's worth your while. Just go give it a shot. So he does. And it ends up indeed being worth it because he gets a offer finally from a school in the NCCAA. Not the NCAA. This is the National Christian College Athletics Association. And he's going to go to nearby Olivet Nazarene University. This is NAIA baseball in the Chicagoland Conference. And every single word of these just sounds absolutely silly to me. Uh, he lays waste to this. He's pitching. He's playing shortstop. He's the closer, specifically when he's pitching, I should say. Uh, he's a good middle infield. He's 2003 Conference Player of the Year. And he uses this to transfer to a school that we have now discussed with uh, Orioles legend Lou Ford, Dallas Baptist. His senior year, he's going to spend at Dallas Baptist. And this is when he kind of shows like, okay, I can't just beat up on Chicagoland. I can also beat up on players at this level. Finishes his senior year, still playing good defense, 378 average, 590 slugging. And this is enough for him to get drafted in the sixth round of the 2004 draft by the Houston Astros. In the next two years, while he's with Houston, or until the end of his time with Houston, uh, two important things happen for him. One, in 2005, he marries his longtime sweetheart, Juliana. She is a Christian country music star and will continue to have a career. She'll sing the anthem every once in a while at games that Ben is at. Uh, and in two, he is part of a trade for, maybe a little foreshadowing with this, Houston sends him as a package for the single most divorced man in the history of baseball, Aubrey Huff, with Tampa Bay Rays. And Aubrey Huff comes over to Houston. Ben Zobris is now a Tampa Bay, uh, still Devil Ray at this point, I believe. Aubrey Huff is what happens when you miss the vein when you're trying to inject your steroids. <laughs> who, who would win a debate between Aubrey Huff and Kurt Schilling? I do think Aubrey Huff would probably like hurt Kurt Schilling very badly. Aubrey Huff seems like a much more violent individual. 
That's how it's going to end. They're going to just, they're also going to get along very, very well. <laughs> like, there's no reason for them to fight. They're just going to make love or something. I don't know. Kurt strikes me as more of the smarmy type, whereas Aubrey would be like, I got my gun in my car, bro. I don't care. I don't care. I'll get my gun right now. Like, that seems yeah. like Aubrey's, like, argument style. Very much so. But thankfully, we don't have to talk about Aubrey Huff. We instead talk about Ben Zobers, who's now come to Tampa with a little bit of hype. He was like swinging the bat real well while he was in the Houston system. He was kind of the centerpiece of that trade. And he makes the leap to the majors just a month after the trade. We're in August of 2006 now. And over the next two years, he's only going to play a total of 83 games because he's only going to bat 200, 234, 225 in that time. That is a 33 OPS plus, which is not very good, especially when he is only playing shortstop. And he's playing shortstop fine. He's okay at it. He rates as a slightly above average shortstop. This is, however, coinciding with the full-time managerial debut of one Joseph John Madden. He inherits the end stages of this rebuild. The Rays are still going to go 121 and 197 in his first two years. But in 2008, things get interesting for both these guys. With the Rays, they don't just have their first winning season. They don't just win the AL East. They win the fucking American League. Uh, Diaz, what happens to them after they win the American League? Uh, so they beat the Red Sox in a dramatic game seven, and then they get their asses whooped by the Phils, baby. They do. They fucking do. But it's a very good season leading up to that. Zobris does only play 67 games this time, but he's been getting a lot of help finally from a Tampa swing coach who's kind of unlocked some power for him. And like, this is when he's going to really sort of unlock the thing that makes Ben Zobers Ben Zobers because he along with all-time guy BJ Upton we got to talk about BJ Upton at some point but he and Zobers have been playing the outfield during most of those first 67 games uh and the coinciding ones for BJ Upton but eventually Joe Madden every once in a while will start shifting them in to maybe have a fifth infielder if he's doing you know a particular shift against one guy this is when Joe Madden's basically like deciding I'm going to rewrite how defense works in baseball and and the Rays are very much at the forefront of that. And at the same time, they're at the forefront of this flexibility. And Madden, who has taken to calling Zobrist Zorilla at this point, that is the nickname that everyone's going to get for him. Now, to be fair, we should clarify, while that's clearly a gorilla reference, there is an actual animal named the Zorilla. It's a relative of the skunk, and people in South Sudan call it the Father of Stinks. So in some ways, that's a kind of unfortunate nickname, but it is the one that Ben Zobers is going to get. And he's been at short, center, third base, left field, right field, and center field, all in just 67 games. During that time, not only is he flexible, his OPS has gone from 33 to 120, and all of a sudden you have a great player on your hands. If you go to Ben Zobers' B-Ref, you don't see a lot of black ink in the standard stats. But you go a little bit further down, you go to like player value, and you will see that in 2009, Ben Zobris leads the American League with 8.6 war. Now, how does he do this? Well, a 948 OPS in 152 games, that's a good start. It is good enough to get him his first all-star spot. He is there at his almost now primary position, second base. However, he was not supposed to be the starting second baseman this year. He was supposed to be the right fielder until injuries forced him into that spot. And then just Madden just keeps running with it. He keeps putting him out in any spot that he needs. In fact, he plays all of the positions except for pitcher and catcher in this season. And there had been other utility guys. There's some early instances with guys like Cesar Tovar or Luis Toho and even Sean Figgins right before him. But 
Zerilla can fucking hit. And he can fucking hit specifically in 2009 against the Baltimore Orioles. In that year, 149 OPS plus against the rest of the league. That's great. But in 2009, young James is having a sort of Orioles rebirth, an Orioles renaissance. We've talked about Nolan Reimold. We've talked about Matt Wieters. There's so many other guys that come up that year and start to become what will, for a while, be a fun Orioles team. While this was a reawakening, Ben Zerbers did make that awakening as rude as fucking possible. Because in 16 games, 66 plate appearances, he has 24 hits. 17 of those are for extra bases, seven home runs. No other player in the league had more home runs against a single team that year than Ben Zobras. That is a quarter of his home runs that season. It is a slash line against the Orioles of 407, 455, 949. That is a 1404 OPS. And while I was looking through this on sports reference, there are a couple other numbers I wanted to bring in. And they're OPS splits, which are basically... If you're looking at an individual season, not only can you see their OPS plus, which if we haven't laid it out before, we are starting with 100 being the league average offensive performance, anything higher being that many percent higher than league average, anything lower being that percent lower. Already he's got that 149 OPS plus. And against the Orioles, you can look at his OPS plus for them versus the rest of his other offensive performances that year. Ben Zobrist, already an excellent hitter this year, is 87% better against the Orioles than any other team that he hits against this season. In 2009, he just wrecks them. I mean, he gets some down ballot MVP love. And maybe if people were bigger nerds back then, he could have become a finalist. This was never going to be an MVP season because the other reason that he's getting all this value is because he's sliding around everywhere. Now, war struggles with roster stuff you know it still i think doesn't know what to necessarily make of what shohei does with the roster flexibility that he opens up also admittedly the rays don't have as good of a 2009 as the other team they faced in the world series or even the other team that people root for here everyone here had a pretty okay 2009 except for the orioles <laughs> 84 and 78 is not enough though for the Rays to return to october it is their second ever time still above 500 and then early in 2010, Zobris is going to get extended. And from 2009 to 2014, it's like no exaggeration to say that he is one of the best players in baseball. Only three players in that five-year stretch accumulate 36 war. Do you want to guess who the other two are? 2009 to 2014, three players, one of whom was Ben Zobris, to accumulate 36 war or more. I'm trying to remember when A-Rod was out doing drugs stuff. I'll tell you what, it's not A-Rod, but you are geographically incredibly close. Miggy? Miggy's one. Miggy's one. And then the other one, I'm talking like literally the same infield geographically close. I mean, I wouldn't assume it would be Jeter. So is it Teixeira? How quickly we forget Robinson Cano, guys. Oh, we you know forget what? What Robinson you know Cano was. Robinson Cano deserves to be forgotten, so it's fine. <laughs> I got problems with that guy, and he justified all of the vibes problems I had with him by getting banned for drugs three times and ruining what would have been a Hall of Fame career if he just didn't try to prolong it with drugs. I think. Well, at least Rob his best years were with your team, right? It, it's the one time, the one time the Yankees got the best years out of someone and then didn't resign them, and someone else gave them stupid money and they were terrible, and not the other way around. It's usually the other way around. Robinson Cano, I think, occupies... like He and 
Alfonso Soriano and my brain are like the exact same person. No, Alfonso Soriano is phenomenal. I will always love Alfonso Soriano. No drug cheating and 40-40 club. Like, he, he's actually, like, fantastic. He's very good, but you know who I think he is not as good as? Ben Zobrist, I'm going to be honest. I still really love Ben Zobrist here. And the thing is, Ben Zobrist is trying to make it very, very hard for me to love him. His next, like, career year, 2011, uh, part of the reason it is because, once again, he has an OPS above 1,000 against the Orioles in 16 games. Only 1090 this time. But he just comes in and is able to now have two different all-star appearances. Largely buoyed by the fact that Tampa's just beating the piss out of this subpar Baltimore season. And the reason that it's becoming, I think, the most difficult, the reason I want to love Zobrist in the face of all this, because I'm starting to get into fantasy baseball a lot. Ben Zobrist has unlocked, again, something magical in fantasy baseball that you know didn't really exist prior to the late 2000s, which is positional flexibility. Like, we take it for granted now. We have all kinds of crazy... I have Spencer Steer on my team. I think literally the only thing I couldn't put him at was catcher by the end of the season. Luisa <laughs> Rise has been out here. Williams Estudio has been out here. Like, there have been some crazy positional flexibility guys in baseball. But we got to go back to our roots. And the roots there is Ben Zobrist. He is... You know, he's a good player in real life. He is an inner circle Hall of Fame fantasy baseball player, I think, for this very reason. Like, he is the next evolutionary step in how these positions are played going forward he almost like starts to rub these edges off a little bit as the rays keep kind of butting up against these walls in the playoffs he goes back to playing largely short kind of still splitting sometime at second and left field but moving around a little bit less for fantasy this makes no difference but it's a little less fascinating to watch him and in 2014 there is a huge trade deadline sell-off for the rays they're totally you know kind of Doing the bottoming out they do where they're still a winning team the next year, which is incredibly frustrating. David Price gets sent off to Detroit. And the Orioles are having a very good season this year. And there is a part of me that's like, God, if we could just get Ben fucking Zobrist. If I could just only have Ben Zobrist traded you know, away from the Rays. And I get my wish, sort of, that offseason. He goes to the Oakland A's which feels very appropriate at that point. Billy Bean is kind of really taking this positional flexibility thing to another level with the A's at that time. But then it turns out that the monkey paw had just been taking a long time to curl because my dream for Ben Zobrist to get traded to any team other than the Rays ends up with him at the 2015 deadline getting traded to a team that we must now briefly discuss, which is the mid-2010s Kansas City Royals. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> As James sucia, once told me, they do not hate the Kansas City Royals. They hate one specific iteration of the Kansas City Royals. Yes, one iteration that largely takes place over two seasons and has some buffer years on either side. Stick with Oakland for a second. The 2014 Oakland A's had been at the top of the league and then just cratered out in the second half. And that ended with this incredible story beginning, which was the 2014 Kansas City Royals. Very inspiring, like made into the playoffs for just the second time since their mid-80s World Series. They win that wild card. They come up against the only Angels playoff team Mike Trout has ever been on. They sweep. They come against the only Orioles team I've ever seen make the ALCS. They sweep them. The only thing that stops them from a World Series this year is Madison Bumgarner just going absolutely fucking insane. 
And the most infuriating thing about these Royals is this, you know, once in a lifetime dream team, just all beautiful scrappy guys. They come back the next year and they just have the best fucking record in the American League. And it's so goddamn irritating. I fucking hate this roster. And what do they do then? What do they fucking do? Get to the trade deadline. And not only do they take probably my favorite National League pitcher at the time, Johnny Cueto. I had a huge crush on Cincinnati Reds, Johnny Cueto. They also go and get fucking Ben Zobrist and try to taint him with their dark Kansas City magic, which is enough to power them over the Mets to a World Series. And no matter how much I fucking hate that team and their goddamn powder blue unis, you know what? There is a part of me deep down. Well, Zobrist got a ring at least. That is, it's just sickening. Like, I don't want to enjoy Ben Zerbis as much at this point. And finally, the baseball gods here is because we get a little bit of a better way to go out with Ben Zerbis. He signs a free agent contract this time. First time he's ever gotten to sign one. And he reunites with the manager that unlocked him so far ago and has now taken that roster building approach to the extreme. This is once again, Joseph John Madden, now with the Chicago Cubs. And, you know, they've got, Ben Zobris now, but they've also got Javi Baez playing all over the middle infield and third. They've got Chris Bryant shifting between the infield and outfield. They've got Kyle Schwarber, who, yes, gets injured very early on, but was going to be a catcher and outfielder before Dalton Varsho. I don't think we talk about that plan with Kyle Schwarber enough, but it's all, you know, these, these ideological, if not obviously genetic, children of Ben Zobrist that are carrying on here. And this is all a prelude to them making the 2016 playoffs Zobris starts very slow in the NLDS, but he does have a huge part in the rally that eventually wins them that series in game four. Struggles in the NLCS against the Dodgers. What really matters is when he gets to the World Series, someone convinces Ben Zobris that I don't know. He's playing the Baltimore Orioles or something. Someone convinces him that they won the wildcard game against Toronto and got to the World Series. And so now Ben Zobris just has to play against the Orioles because he absolutely lights up the team they actually play. The Terry Francona managed Cleveland, now Cleveland Guardians. He goes 10 for 28 during this series with a 919 OPS. There is an infamous rain delay in game seven. And when they return in extra innings, Zobris drives in the first of the two go-ahead runs, the ultimate game winners. This team, which has a rookie of the year, which has an MVP, which has, you know, Cy Young winners. None of them are the ones that win World Series MVP. Instead, World Series MVP of, again, as I said in Making Memories, arguably one of the most important World Series in the history of the sport of baseball is won by Ben Zobrist. Now he has a pretty good twilight, but this is now the twilight of his time with the Cubs. 461 games altogether over four years, 269, 362, 411 slash. Some highlights, gets a serial named after him, Zorilla Crunch. He's one of three Cubs from the 2016 team to get serials named after them. Uh, he has a couple other milestones with the Cubs. Finally gets his first career ejection in 2018 from none other than still at it, Phil Cuzzy. And then here's something that I do find funny. We said again, he was in contested territory. He grew up a Cardinals fan. And in 2019, this lifelong Cardinals fan had been a pitcher all throughout the end of college. Finally gets a chance to pitch a little bit in major league as a position player. You can imagine if he went and was graduating college in 2004, he was probably still following the Cardinals, you'd imagine, at least until he enters the professional ranks. And so it's not unreasonable to think that when he was still a Cardinals fan, he was real excited about a young prospect named Yadier Molina. Well, in 2019, he gets his first pitching appearance against Yadier Molina and strikes him out. It is tough because Yadi is a very important player in modern Puerto Rican baseball. 
But I do love position players striking people out when they're pitching. That It's just objectively very funny. Of course. So eventually, he has a, a up and down 2019 that we'll talk about in one second. Eventually, COVID and some other circumstances in March of 2020 lead him to retire. So let's just get into those circumstances. Zobrist, as we've mentioned, very bible guy. When we were saying this, he's like unorganized Bible studies in the locker room guy. He's like a Christian summer camp counselor guy. He's like appeared in a movie by a company named Provident Films kind of Bible guy. He's very, very Bible guy. And like many Bible guys, when he and his wife have some troubles, they go to their pastor, 2019. Their pastor at the time is a guy named Byron Yawn. He'd given them some pre-marriage counseling, some post-marriage counseling. He helped Ben Zobers through some like anxiety and depression. He's a very trusted person for this family. Shortly thereafter, Yawn's wife, Robin, she finds evidence that spring of emotional cheating, we'll say, between Byron and Juliana. And she tells Zoe. So he steps back from the game in May of 2019. They work through all this. And then there's a flurry of things. I'm going to try and see if I can get this sequence correct. Juliana files for divorce that month, which is then dismissed. Shortly thereafter, Zobrist files for divorce. Juliana then files a counter-complaint about Zobrist depriving her of her livelihood by not playing baseball during this break. And at this point, it comes public that Byron and Juliana, it was not just emotional cheating, it was a sexual relationship. And also, Byron Yawn had defamed Ben Zobrist of $8 million over their uh, whole time knowing one another through some nefarious actions with various charitable groups, quote-unquote charitable groups. Imagine paying some guy $8 million to fuck your wife. And to tell you how you are doing badly in your marriage and how you can do better. Like, gaslighting isn't an appropriate enough term. Like, this is like... Wait, I mean, this is like arson. This is like just lighting the yeah. whole house on fire. <laughs> yeah, this is fracking. Yeah, exactly. BP is right there with Ben Zobrist, marriage counselor. Yeah, it is an unfortunate like soap opera end to Ben Zobrist's career because I think it takes away from the career that Ben Zobrist had. I mean, he's a two-time champion. He is back-to-back with different teams, which is a rare occurrence. There's only at this point 10 now players that have done it. He was the eighth ever to do it. Uh, he shares that in the NBA with people like Steve Kerr and Danny Green, Deion Sanders in the NFL. It is a, a small club of people that are able to move from locker room to locker room and still contribute enough to championship teams. And that is because, I mean, Ben Zobris is a skeleton key and he was a skeleton key that unlocked a new level of roster construction and you know helped unlock a raise organization that my God, it's still really fucking good. What I would give for the Tampa Bay Rays to just be a little less good right now, even just slightly less, would be amazing. Most of all, I wanted to think about, like, as I talked through kind of re-researching this, how much it's clearly of a moment of my 2009 reconnection with baseball. Because if I'd done this a year sooner, I don't know, maybe I would think Osdrubal Cabrera or Rajah Davis was like the greatest film of all time. Those guys both had OPSs north of a thousand, at least eight games against the Orioles in 2008. 2010, it was guys like Gabe Gross and Brandon Inge. Like there's a guy who does that every year. And Zobris did it consistently with the Orioles for a long time. But something about coming back that year in a big way and then 16 times just going up against the Rays and having some motherfucker that can play every goddamn position on the field just slap the ball around like you're putting it up on a tee. I thought Ben Zobris was the best player in the world. That year in the American League, he was by war. And he, even if he is not now, will forever remain a guy for me. Well, he just Love feels ben like Zobrist. 
with his versatility, he just feels ahead of his time almost. It's 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 good that he landed with Joe Madden when he did, because Joe Madden is the kind of progressive thinking manager that can get the most out of him. Exactly. And I like I think you're hitting exactly. He's not ahead of his time. He and Joe Madden are the reason that time happens. Showing that like you don't need to set a strong bat in one position forever to get that strong back in Cincinnati bats. Like you can move people around the field. Uh, literally, you can move people around the field. Joe Madden is also doing at this time very, very much to an obnoxious extent. So much so that Major League Baseball will eventually make rules to stop it. But I think that marriage is exactly what is able to create the age we live in now. But I think we have one more guy to talk about who comes from a much simpler time from before we had metrics. But before we talk about that, I do need to say I looked into it. The last white cornerback to start in the NFL was Iowa Barnstormers legend Kevin Casebarn in 2003 for the Bengals before they moved him to safety. But there is a chance that streak is broken 20 years later, because Riley Moss was drafted by the Broncos in the third round earlier this year, but missed all of preseason due to a core muscle surgery and did not play in this 70-point shellacking last week. So he I mean, may that was the start... missing piece. That's what they needed to shut down Miami. He may you start can't... next to Pat Sertan Jr. in the next couple weeks, which would be the first in over 20 years. I mean, he can't possibly do worse than giving up a touchdown every possession yeah yeah that that's true you cannot do worse than that but with that i will now talk about the man known to some as roger chamberlain to others as jeff holton but to most who know him damian miller damian miller was born October 13, 1969, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. As one hilarious tweet from a person who works for MLB.com as an editorial slash uh, social producer does, they do, like, October 13th superlatives for those days. Does anyone want to guess who has the most war of, of any player born on October 13th? Is it Damian Miller? It is not. It is Eddie Matthews. And then Rube Waddell is second. Ooh! Rube. But after going through the list of people with the most war for that birthday, and then the active leader of Andrew Wance, who had a combined zero at the time, they then did some other birthday superlatives. Best old-time nicknames. Best alliteration. And then Let's Remember Some Guys is the category. And under the Let's Remember Some Guys category is Taylor Buckholtz, and Damian Miller. So MLB.com has him listed as a let's remember some guys. So the perfect type of guy to bring up in this recreation of the first episode we ever did. One of the reasons why Damian Miller is such a perfect guy has to do with everything that happened before he started playing professional baseball in MLB. Like I said, he's from La Crosse, Wisconsin, very small town. Went to the Franciscan school, Viterbo University, in his hometown, La Crosse. And is the only major leaguer ever produced by this NAIA school. Romans around 2,500. Like, all right, I'm going to go to this college no one's ever heard of in my hometown and play baseball there. 
and plays so well he gets picked in the 20th round of the 1990 MLB draft. As he's coming up through the ranks, we have the MLB strike. And at this point, Major League Baseball is looking for replacement players. And it's important to note that replacement players never play in the MLB because they come to an agreement and there is never a game with replacement players. But anybody who technically crossed the line is banned for life from the MLB Players Association. And that includes a young Damian Miller who had never played in the majors before and was still just a a minor leaguer with no money who accepted the invitation. And like baseball players that he played with, his teammates, his friends, like he didn't, he never got the shit that a like actual professionals who crossed the line did because they understood that he, you know, early 20 something with no money, you know, never played before, but the rules were the rules in the MLBPA banned him from membership for life. But he does get to finally come up to the majors in 1997. And his first major league at bat was as a pinch hitter against Mariano Rivera when he was playing for the Twins on August 10th, 1997. His his Twins career is extremely brief because in that offseason, he is expansion draft pick number 47 overall, making him an original Arizona Diamondback. With the Arizona Diamondbacks is where he is going to have the majority of his success and also have the moment that makes him a villain to me as a Yankee fan. Starts off as a backup on this very bad Diamondbacks team, becomes a starter, and does pretty good. I was reading a, um, a Diamondback, five greatest catching seasons in Diamondbacks history, and his... 2001 season is considered the second best in their history with his phenomenal war of 1.5 because of how he's okay, but catchers, you know, just obviously notoriously hard position. And he did a great job catching Randy Johnson and known piece of shit, Kurt Schilling. He's doing great for a catcher and on a pretty bad team that's getting better. And on May 9th, 2000, he hits the first walk-off Grand Slam in history of both the Diamondbacks and Chase Field in the bottom of the 12th off of Oral Hershiser, the Dodgers, who feels like... Really? Yeah, it feels like that he's feels like a totally older. different era, yeah. Like, you, you think about him and it's like, wait a second, there's no way Earl Hershiser still played in 2000. And it's like, oh yeah, he did as a 42-year-old pitch. 2000, my yeah. God. Yeah, I mean... His three all-star appearances were 1987, 88, and 89. So you think of Earl Hershiser as an 80s pitcher. But no, he was still there in 2000. And Damian Miller hit a walk-off Grand Slam against him. So Damian Miller, original Diamondback. And he's with the team as the team continues to get better. And that 2001 team is really good. And they go to the World Series. Where he is, like I said, starting catcher. Catching Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling. And... In the bottom of the ninth, Game 7, 2001, he bunts against Mariano Rivera. Mo panics and throws the ball over the head of Derek Jeter, allowing this rally to happen. He gets pinch ran for, and the person who pinch runs for him does score the game-tying run as part of this incredible rally that 
gives the Diamondbacks their first championship and only championship to this date until Corbin Carroll wins them another one probably within the next five years. But the Damian Miller catcher bunt in the bottom of the ninth that sparks a massive rally, which I think is the, like, the thing that you would expect from a okay catcher. Like, that, yes, that you did what you were supposed to do, and it just somehow worked. Again, because he's not in the MLBPA, he's not allowed on any of the World Series merchandise. So despite being an integral part of this team, being the starting catcher and also sparking the rally that won them the World Series, all of the ceremonial like videos and pictures and like shirts, he's not on any of it. So if, if you just look at it now, it's like he doesn't even exist. Does Who's the catcher? He- Nobody knows. Does he get a commemorative cereal that's like off-brand, not officially sanctioned, kind of like Ben Zobrist? No, he gets nothing. Damien Milled Oats? I mean, you could call him and see if he wants to do that, like with your cereal, but I think the MLBPA might sue you if you try. Miller well, no, Light. Again, what are we doing just, here? This isn't endorsed by Major League Baseball player Damian Miller. This is just as Damian Miller, and these are his oats. We'll see. I mean, maybe maybe we can contact him and see if he wants to do some off-brand oats. But yeah, he's not on any of this merchandise, which I think is hilarious. When Kurt Schilling gets to be on it, and he's a piece of shit. Like let let Damian Miller on the merchandise. But either let Damian Miller on the merchandise, or let Damian Miller defraud the state of Rhode Island for a video games company just once to make it even. R.I.P. Kingdoms of Amalur re-reckoning. But as part of what I mentioned at the beginning, because he's not allowed on any of this merchandise, he's also not allowed in like video games. So those names I used at the beginning were for the 2005 series of games. Probably my favorite baseball game ever was Major League Baseball 2K5, the one that had Derek Jeter on the cover. That's where he's Jeff Holton. In MVP Baseball 2005, he's Robert Chamberlain. And he has different names for pretty much every year of baseball games that he exists in. And it's hilarious because if you play one of those games, you got uh, Ben Sheets, starting pitcher in 2005, Lyle Overbay, Carlos Lee, Jeff Jenkins, Russell Branion, Junior Spivey, Brady Clark, and then Jeff Holton or Roger Chamberlain. It's like, who the fuck is that guy? Oh, it's Damian Miller because he's not allowed to exist in these. Also, and, fucking Lyle Overbay. Sorry, continue. I know. An- another like phenomenal, just like, oh, wait. Yeah, that's a guy. I forgot about Lyle Overbay. Russell Brannion, I want to say, had the briefest but most significant Phillies career of all time. We got him off of, uh, he was a DFA. He was with us for like 10 days, I think. And in those 10 days, he had a go-ahead homer against the Nationals. Uh, and then he was no longer a Philly. But if we don't win that game, we don't win the NL East in 2007. So let me just say, Philadelphia Phillies legend, Russell Brannion. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, what a what a beautiful two weeks it was for Russell Brannion. Getting traded for a player to be named later is also phenomenal guy credentials. We don't like, give a fuck who it is. We don't know who it is, but we'll figure it out later. So the year after the World Series, Damian Miller makes his first and only All-Star team. Fantastic guy credentials is to be an All-Star once. Like it, it feels like just the most guy thing that you could do. Dave in, like, Wilson is one that comes to mind immediately. His, his war 
for that season where he made the all-star team was one. <laughs> he plays 11 seasons. His career war is 8.9. It's like he, he's there and everyone likes him and he's just good enough to keep there, even though technically he's a below replacement level player for pretty much his whole career. After 2002, despite his all-star season, he does leave Arizona and goes to Oakland. And in Oakland, he sets a team record with a .99 fielding percentage with just one error the entire season. Begins the 2003 season with 96 consecutive games without an error. Tracing back to the season before, he, he ends up going 139 consecutive games without an error and 1,012 total chances without an error, uh, which is the sixth longest streak in Major League history before finally committing his one and only error of, on September 11th, 2003. After one year with Oakland, he does go home to Wisconsin where he plays for his local Brewers. And in his last season, in 2007, he hits his second walk-off homer ever, you know, seven years after that first one for the Diamondbacks, in the bottom of the 11th against the Astros. During lacrosse day at Miller Park, the day honoring his hometown that he loved so much and had been in forever, which I think was just a fantastic capper for his career, just feels like here's a guy who stayed home, played at a small school, wanted to work his way up to the big leagues, made maybe not the best decision, but one that no one ever judged him for of, you know, this might be my only chance to play in the big leagues. Despite having a, a, over an 11-season successful career, his most famous achievement, he does not get to be in any of the like celebrations or merchandise for because of not being part of the MLBPA. And even if you wanted, if you were a kid and somehow your favorite player was Damon Miller, you couldn't even play with him in, in the game. You'd have to fucking hack the game and change the names be like, like everyone did with all the NCAA games to import their rosters in. Like, no, they don't want you to enjoy Damian Miller. And the fact that the MLBPA doesn't want us to enjoy Damian Miller is why I enjoy Damian Miller so much. <laughs> We must remember that guy because MLB strictly will not for legal reasons. I mean, some might say Barry Bonds, Damian Miller. Other than a few injections, what's really the difference? Both erased from MVP baseball. Although Barry Bonds just was different because he intentionally did that because he thought he could license himself for more money. This is well, true, and- but let it also be said, more money, whatever. World Series won. Damian Miller won. Barry Bonds zero. <laughs> is Damian Miller better than Barry Bonds? The Reigns argument says yes. <laughs> it's one of those ones where it's like all of the green boxes on Barry Bonds' side until the one at the end. It's and very that's like the Trent, one that matters. It's a very Trent Dilfer Dan Marino comparison. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking now of. Uh... So in the game after Damian Miller hit that walk-off home run in 2007 for the Brewers, the the next game he had a two-homer game with seven RBIs, which was a Milwaukee club record at the time, wearing a shirt under his jersey that said hitting is simple. He had no homers and six RBIs all season as a backup, and then in two games had three homers and 11 RBIs. It was like, as a backup catcher and just a, a guy who's been around, like, 
having like probably the coolest week of your life outside of the World Series. You didn't get to like really celebrate during your victory lap at home is is just so nice. It was definitely a very good signal. Like, yo, retire on top right now. He's done. He can go home, go back to lacrosse and just enjoy the rest of his life there. And the good news for Damian Miller, so this is where we get to the confusing part today. The good news for Damian Miller is that day, we were very compelled by the story that Xavier told about Damian Miller. And so we did elect him as the first ever member of the Hall of Guy. And about two and a half months later, came to our first ever relitigation. Xavier selected Ben Zobrist as one of his choices. So Ben Zobrist also resides in the Hall of Guy. Now, whereas we would normally discuss these three, we are left with but one member here of this trio that is not already in the hall. So I'm not sure how we want to proceed with this discussion. So I don't want to be a dick, but I thought it would be funny if Joe Jurevicius didn't get in for the fourth different time after not getting in originally, not getting in on a relitigation, not getting in during the Veterans Committee, and then not getting on the re-air. I also don't want to be too mean to Joe Jurevicius, but I do think we should just pick whoever we like the best. Although it's tough because, again, Dane Miller's already in and Ben Zobers is already in. But so just... we could have our first two-time inductee yes. into the yeah. hall from this episode. Yeah, I, mean, I can always make a second plaque. We have enough fun facts to fill out two plaques, I think. Uh, but, I mean, if we are just considering the guys on their merit, it's pretty hard to say that any of these guys had a more impressive performance than leading the Super Bowl in receiving yards and having the most impactful play in Tampa Bay Buccaneers history while also dealing with the personal turmoil that he was going through at that time. It's pretty impressive. I, I would be impressed by it. I'm even more impressed by the fact that he backs it up the next time they play the Eagles too. That's an incredibly important distinction, I think. It is very... Well, because I think... One of the things that we went over when we first put it up to is like it has to be like a fuck you specifically element to it as well. Uh, if it wasn't, then I was certainly a theme in a future episode. And I would love to crash the numbers, but I have to feel like a larger percentage than like if you were like 3% if everything was equal, you would average 3% of your stats against every other team in the league. I think he's got to be closer to like 30% of his career stats are against the Eagles. Like it feels very specific. Well, and I love that. Like, so I tried to emulate my initial approach with this, which is having far too many numbers. I've learned to pare down on the numbers a little bit, but I did want to kind of like call back to when I, I largely based my results on that. And I love that we could be going back or we do be modern day with Diaz. He's like, I would love to have these numbers, but I don't have them because I hate numbers. I mean, just the pure, it's the eye test and the feeling which he left me with was just like, I can't believe fucking Joe Juravicious is fucking us up. Like, it was Keyshawn Johnson, fine. Warwick Dunn, great running back. Mike Allstott, perhaps the greatest fullback of the 21st century. Any of those, I'm okay with. But the biggest play is fucking 6'5", lanky Joe Juravicious overcoming personal difficulties to fuck up the Eagles. See, I was just being a dick about it earlier, but I, I do feel that we kind of have to we have to honor Joe Jurabicious at this point, since Damian Miller and Ben Zobrist have already had their time in the sun. I think where I'm left is going through this again. I mean, we've talked about 
AJ Feely. We've talked about Lou Ford. We've talked about Nolan Reimold. Like going back to the stories of these three guys, we have hit on so many more themes that we have touched on in the two years since we started doing it. And I believe that we, despite how terribly we might have executed that first episode, like there's something to say for us going back and talking about these three guys again. I think feeling very strongly that we had a feel for the kind of people we wanted to talk about early on. And as we've said, this is the foundation upon which the hall has been built. And I I do think that if for no reason other than the legacy that he crafted in being a part of the beginning of this hall, I think Joe Jurovicius has got to get brought in. The only question is, is he still alive in that basement where we've been keeping everyone? It, it's been no, no, two no, years. Dude, I just said, not the basement. I just said, he's the literal foundation of the hall. So this is posthumous. He, we, we, we put him into the cement. We killed oh. Joe Juravicious. <laughs> well, no, I, I, in fact, would go the opposite way. I would say that it is a, <laughs> leaving, it is a living and breathing institution. <laughs> <laughs> it is sentient. And part of that sentient consciousness is Joe Juravicious. He overcame his staph infection. He is but one more stud in the foundation of this hall. And, I mean, I think it's time that we remove him from the drywall. We replace that foundational piece because we need to move Joe Juravicious up into the main hall where he shall live forever with his personal vendetta against the Philadelphia Eagles, Joe Juravicious, arguably the second best JJ wide receiver in NFL history. Justin Jefferson probably already has number one, but Joe Juravicious, Cleveland legend, Penn State legend, fucking the Philadelphia Eagles legends, and now Hall of Guy inductee. Welcome, Joe. Welcome, Joe. I'm trying not to react to the image of the wall Titan from Attack on Titan that Xavier just sent to us. That's what Joe Jervicious is. He's the wall Titan. Yep, that's Joe Jervicious looking at us and plotting his revenge. (laughs) Well, I don't want to give him too much time to plot, so I'm going to go ahead and rush through our thanks real quick. We do, of course, want to thank producer Craig and all the coders behind him. Thanks, Sports Reference, for all the numbers that we have pulled today. Thank you to Don Hammer, musical director, for our lovely theme music, and thank you, above all, to you, dear listener, for checking in again. And if you want to check in, until the next time that we all gather here, you can find everything at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. If you like the show, tell people you can find it there. We think it's great. And we think your friends that enjoy sports and idiots would also enjoy this. It's a Venn diagram. That's a circle, baby. For two years, for two years, we have wasted our time with this. But that's what makes it great. It's, it's, like, uh, it's like Tom Hanks quote in uh, A League of Their Own. If it was smart, everybody would do it. The stupid is what makes it great. <laughs> and then he goes off and pisses to the side, if I'm not mistaken. I think he was so. There were so the many different that. pissing shots of Tom Hanks in that movie. That's that's one of one of the best. That's a mighty fine pee in Mr. Dugan. Tom Tom Hanks has a lot of shots of him peeing in movies. It's a thing that he loves to film for some reason. Uh, we shouldn't talk about this anymore. <laughs> Anyway, folks, that's all we got this week. I got to go to a ball game. I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Yogi Berra once said, it's like guy vu all over again. Yeah.
I just I I don't need to focus on anything except for the one game that is happening in approximately one hour and fifty three minutes. Nothing else exists. Xavier That's asked me to were, before we decided you were on, something like, else. Xavier, there is no other than that right now. Yeah, no, there. Yeah, there's no other than that. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to say it because it would be bad vibes to compare it to a game that the Sixers lost. But I've had several of those days where it's like, yeah, how do you feel today? It's like, well. Talk to me at 7 p.m. and then talk to me again at 10 p.m. and I'll let you know.